I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. With those chilling words broadcast in a morose, weary tone on the 3rd of September 1939, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared the start of World War II. His infamous policy, peace in our time, lay in ruins. For the first two years, the war went badly for Britain. By summer 1941, most of Western Europe was ruled by the Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler. Britain still held out under Churchill, but it was a lonely vigil. Then at 3.30am, the morning of June 22, 1941, Hitler threw the greatest army assembled in history across the Polish border into the Soviet Union. Three million men, 3,350 tanks and 2,000 aircraft, supported by Romanians in the south and the Finns to the north. Operation Barbarossa had begun. Western military chiefs expected the Red Army to be defeated in six weeks. They were wrong. The Great Patriotic War, as it's called in Russia, continued for four bloody years through the siege of Leningrad, the battles of Moscow, Stalingrad, Kursk, and finally the Battle of Berlin, which destroyed Hitler's Nazi regime in May 1945. Victory came at a high price. More than 25 million Russians and other Soviet people were killed. The Cold War, Stalin's brutal dictatorship and popular celebration of Western victories like the Battle of Britain and D-Day have eclipsed the key role of the Russian people in the defeat of Hitler. The greatest Russian military leader in the war, Marshal Georgi Zhukov himself became Stalin's victim after the war. Since the fall of communism, Marshal Zhukov is once again a celebrated hero in Russia, but he is still largely an unknown figure in the West. After the victory over Hitler, Eisenhower said the United Nations owed the greatest debt to Marshal Zhukov for what he had done on the Eastern Front. History might be different. He was the right man at the right place, at the right time. It's hard to overestimate this hero, this gallant man. He did it. We all must tip our hat to this famous Russian marshal. The defense of Moscow, the defense of Leningrad. He arrived in Leningrad in a black rage and he hit the place like the wrath of God, sacking, in many cases, getting black marketeers, executors, and so on, but above all, stiffening the morale of the people there. Eisenhower, Montgomery, and Zhukov. Without Stalingrad and without Kursk, probably one would not even know about Eisenhower as a military commander. There would be probably no second front. Zhukov deserves his reputation in, in Russia now. Very much. Not just in Russia. Everywhere. Was Zhukov 
the man who was most responsible for defeating Hitler? Yes, out of these three generals, yes. I know very well that my father considered General Eisenhower as his comrade-in-arms, and I know that uh, he uh, felt great sympathy to General Eisenhower, and I'm sure that this sympathy was mutual. I think if he had not invaded the Soviet Union, America would probably not have entered the war, and Britain would almost certainly have been defeated or have had to have sued for for peace, Um, and we would have had a Hitler dominated or a German-dominated Europe. I think it's very unlikely that if America came into the war that the Western democracies could have defeated Germany on their own without the participation of the Soviet Union. My journey on this story began in May 1995. As government press secretary, I was a member of the official party to visit Moscow for Boris Yeltsin's celebration of the 50th anniversary of the end of the war. On the way from the airport, we stopped in the suburbs at a memorial sculpture shaped like a giant tank trap. This marked the furthest advance of Hitler's tanks. From the front lines, German soldiers could see the spires of the Kremlin. Marshal Zhukov commanded the desperate defence of Moscow that denied Hitler victory. My visit sparked a deep interest in this fearful war in the East that destroyed Hitler's dream of Nazi domination in Europe and the world. Stalin got more than 80 warnings of the invasion from Churchill, his own spies and others. Marshal Zhukov, decorated twice as a cavalryman in the Tsarist army during the First World War, had risen by January 1941 to be chief of staff of the Red Army. This peasant son of a poor cobbler and a mother who worked as a farm labourer was gravely concerned about the German forces build-up on the border. He too tried to get Stalin to allow the army prepare for an attack, but to no avail. The eminent British historian Professor Richard Overy. I think Stalin was very worried that that if um, he did begin to take military measures in the summer of 1941, that this might provoke the Germans. He seems to have been very alive to the experience of um, the outbreak of the First World War, which was carried out following the Tsarist mobilisation. He was determined not to repeat that mistake. And so everything that, that was recommended to him by his military commanders, Zhukov included, uh, he just simply rejected out of hand. That's provocation, he told Zhukov. Returning to Moscow for this documentary, I stayed in the Arbat Hotel in the heart of the old cultural district. Once it was a Communist Party lodge for visiting dignitaries, now it's the property of the Russian presidency. There I spoke to Vasily Istratov, a diplomat and historian, about Stalin's state of mind. Stalin thought that the psychology of a fellow dictator is clear to him, and he is better than Hitler. The idea was not to give any pretext don't follow any kind of uh, provocation. Furthermore, the British in those days, he was very suspicious about British, especially about Churchill, will do their best to provoke a war between Hitler and Stalin. He was very concerned from the point of view of agents surrounding him. A great mystery has surrounded what happened to Stalin in the first days of the war. Some accounts say he had a nervous breakdown and retreated to his dacha. Professor Overy says new material challenges that view. 
Recent work in the Soviet archives in Russia has unearthed a lot of new material surrounding this period. I mean, there's no doubt that for Stalin it was a shock. There's no doubt that he, at the end of June, wondered what on earth was going to happen. How could you, how could you get out of this? So there's, there's no question that this is a tense time for Stalin. But the old story that he went off to his dacha outside Moscow and kind of sulked there for a bit seems not to have been quite wrong. It seems that he went there in order to compose the famous speech he then made over the radio on July the 3rd to rouse the Soviet people. When the Germans invaded and, and simply swamped and overran Soviet defences, this, I mean, was an extraordinary shock to Stalin. His whole political career was on the line. The fact, yes, that he was ashen, neurotic, bad-tempered, of course, is absolutely what you would expect in those circumstances. Leningrad was surrounded by the Germans in early September and looked like it had fall. Hitler intended Leningrad and Moscow to be removed from the face of the earth, obliterated, including their civilian populations. He had plans to flood the site of Moscow as an artificial lake. Men, women and children were to be drowned. In Mein Kampf, Hitler said that Nazi Germany's living space was to be won at the expense of Russia. These were desperate days. Hitler was absolutely clear that, as far as he was concerned, Leningrad and Moscow were the the centre of the capitals of Judeo-Bolshevism, of the Jewish world conspiracy. And he had absolutely no compunction about seeing the entire population of Leningrad starve to death or be shelled to death. And he ordered Moscow to be wiped from the face of the earth. We talk about genocide, but I think we need to remember that, that Hitler's mood at that point was exceptionally genocidal, not just against the Jews, but against the, the ordinary Russian people as well. Hitler made it clear early in 1941 that this is what he was waging. He was waging a war of extermination. And the General Plan East, as it was called, which was produced in several versions in late 1941, spring of 1942, made it clear that yeah, possibly 30 million Russians would just die. This was genocide on an extraordinary scale. Stalin's refusal to withdraw troops from Kiev before they joined the millions captured or killed caused a blazing row with Zhukov. The dictator sacked him as chief of staff, but was wily enough to keep him on in the Stavka, the inner war command, where Zhukov soon demonstrated his key ability to snatch victory from defeat. With Leningrad facing disaster, Stalin summoned Zhukov to Moscow, In the discussions, he described the city's situation as hopeless. Zhukov disagreed and offered to take control. He flew into the city on September 10th, narrowly avoiding German fighter planes. Leningrad was, of course, going to be a disaster. The Germans did seem unstoppable, and Zhukov arrived, and with with the minimum of equipment, resources, but a great deal of, of determination and improvisation, some kind of defence could be drawn together. Zhukov stiffened morale. That's what he did wherever he went. He stiffened morale, and the long, bitter years of siege ensued. He would use punishment battalions, and he was very ruthless uh, in the use of troops. He did inspire a strengthening of morale, but it was keep your spirits up or else, wasn't it? Zhukov was a tough man. I mean, he came from a tough school. He was committed to defending the revolution and to defending Russia, and he thought if people didn't do the job, they should be punished. So he took a tough view of his troops. Uh, If people fled, if they lacked the will to fight, then he was there to stiffen them up, and that meant taking some of them out, putting them in penal battalions, shooting some. For Zhukov, and indeed for a great many Soviet officials, this is what had to be done, you know, to save the revolution. It meant acting with extraordinary severity. When I visited the site of the Germans' furthest advance just four miles from the city, now St. Petersburg, a gentle morning snowfall lay on two old T-34 tanks beside the memorial. 
Fresh flowers and wreaths were sprinkled with the snow, a reminder of how powerfully the war lives on in Russian memory. More than a million people died from starvation, cold, bombing and shelling. On October 5th, 1941, with growing panic in Moscow, Stalin turned to Zhukov again, calling him to the capital's defence. Stalin had no clear information about the front line. The situation was chaotic. An exhausted Zhukov set out to investigate himself. To stay awake, he ran in front of his car in the cold night air. During this strange odyssey, Zhukov realised his own family's one-roomed cottage in the tiny village of Strelkovka was about to fall to the Germans. In Moscow, I met Zhukov's two eldest daughters, Era and Ella, who told me the story. The five children, there was his mother, and the Germans were quite near. And if they stayed, they would be killed, murdered, because everybody knew that they are relatives of General Zhukov. They were taken out of this village and uh, brought to Samara, our grandmother. She lived with us. When Germans came and occupied the village, their house was uh, burned. When Zhukov took charge of the defence of Moscow, there were only 90,000 men between the Germans and the capital, all that was left of 800,000. In late autumn, yet another line of defence was crashed by Hitler forces. And Moscow was uh, left practically undefended. In days and hours, Hitler forces would be able to come to Moscow. A few motorcycles did arrive on the suburbs of Moscow in October. The panic was substantial. Moscow was given an order to evacuate ministries, embassies and the government. Stalin stayed. The panic was not only for Moscovites, the panic was for the army. And the arrival of Zhukov with direct orders and his own understanding how to defend the city was probably the major thing which saved the city. The Red Army was able to provide yet another bench of divisions, this time from Siberia. These were the last prepared division Soviet Union had, and they saved the city. But without Zhukov, without his drive to do the job properly, it was probably impossible. Um, Stalin was at his dasher and was not certain what to do. He wanted Zhukov to tell him the truth, tell me communist truth, he said. And Zhukov did. Zhukov said, uh, it's tough, it's hard, but we can save the capital. Uh, Stalin made the historic decision that he would stay as well. And I think one of the few really courageous decisions Stalin ever made in his life. And when Stalin stayed, there's no doubt this beefed up the local population. Um, and it also gave the tired forces defending Moscow and the new forces that were drawn from the east, a real Philip as well. I mean, they could, they could say to themselves, this is, you know, we've been given a special task. Our task is to save Moscow. So this too was an historic turning point. German military memoirs, uh, and uh, to some extent, uh, certainly in the, the popular historical view in the West, it was really uh, the Russian winter which destroyed um, the German forces' uh, attack on Moscow. Um, assess that for me. It wasn't just the winter. German forces were grinding to a halt. Long lines of supply, long logistical lines, very heavy casualties, much heavier than they'd experienced at any time since the First World War. And the Soviet forces were very cleverly disposed, concealed. Careful intelligence was taken of the, of the German forces. For the first time, the Red Army began to fight properly like the enemy was confronting. And so it, it isn't just a question of the winter. The Germans didn't plan for war in winter conditions of minus 40. That was a grave mistake. Zhukov's December counterattack threw them back up to 130 miles. 
He celebrated his victory by bringing his family from Samara, behind the Urals, to his headquarters. There is one remembrance which is very dear to us. Just a few days before the beginning of 1942, father um, happened to take all our family to, uh, let us say, a front line, <laughs> which was uh, in Perhushkova, that's about 20 kilometers from Moscow. We had Christmas <laughs> there. All our family united, and uh, for about uh, three or four days we stayed there. You know, that was a time when the Germans, for the first time, they had big defeat in battle for Moscow. The Nazis' one-million-strong army attacking Moscow was defeated. Zhukov said later Hitler's reputation for invincibility had been cracked. After this great success, Stalin took over the military leadership once again and launched a general offensive. Zhukov wanted to concentrate forces for a second big push before the capital. Stalin's offensive was a costly failure. Into the summer, more disasters followed in the south. There was renewed panic in Moscow as the Germans pushed on Stalingrad. Stalin once again turned to Zhukov, this time to make him deputy supreme commander, second only to himself. The Russian victory at Stalingrad is the best-known battle in the West. Zhukov was a key architect of the offensive which surrounded Marshal Paulus and Hitler's Sixth Army. Suddenly, for Stalin, everything was going wrong again. Suddenly, German forces were pushing everything in, in front of them. Rostov was lost, Sevastopol lost. The Caucasus oil supply was under threat. Stalingrad, the city that bore his name, looked as if it would fall easily, actually, in a few weeks to Paulus's army. It was really a point of no return for Stalin. He had to recognise in the end that no amount of, of stamping and shouting on his part from Moscow was going to transform the situation. He was going to have to find a deputy who understood war better than he did. And it was that point that he finally summoned Zhukov and said, you're going to be my deputy commander-in-chief. But Zhukov was reluctant. Zhukov understandably was reluctant. I mean, he had a, he'd had a tough time with Stalin. He'd already been made chief of staff, then sacked in 1941. I think for a great many of his colleagues, I'm sure, they would have seen this in some sense as a poison chalice. Uh, working for Stalin meant, you know, at some point your, your number was bound to be up. But two things, Zhukov was a patriot. Um, he wanted to win this war. And... He also understood Stalin better, I think. I mean, he was one of the few people who'd argued with Stalin and had survived. So they established, I wouldn't say a warm relationship, but they established a kind of working relationship, where Zhukov knew his limits. He couldn't contradict Stalin on issues of politics or security. But Stalin knew his limits, too. He knew that he was not an operational commander. And if he went on pretending he was, the Soviet Union would lose the war. When Zhukov was relegated after the war to Soviet-style non-person status by a jealous Stalin and later Khrushchev, his name was all but erased from war encyclopedias, including his role at Stalingrad. This victory was a great psychological and military boost. But Hitler's forces on the entire Soviet-German front were still enormous, over six million men compared to the Soviets' six and a half million. A great unsung Russian success in the first six months of the war was the transfer of a thousand factories from the German line of advance to behind the Urals, enabling the Soviet Union to outproduce Nazi Germany in tanks, guns and aircraft from 1942 onwards. This was critical to victory. Now, as the summer of 1943 approached, the scene was set for a major turning point, a battle not well known in the West, the Battle of Kursk, the greatest tank battle in history. 
The region lay in a salient, a Russian bulge into the German front line southwest of Moscow. Hitler and his generals decided to eliminate the salient with a massive pincer attack on both sides. Most of Wehrmacht's hitting power was focused on this battle. Zhukov gambled, and it was a gamble to some extent, that this is what the Germans would do. They then got quite good intelligence on it, so they could confirm this is what the Germans were going to do. And both sides concentrated almost a million men into this tiny area. Uh, thousands of aircraft and thousands of, of tanks. The Germans expected a, a fairly easy victory because they did not think that the Soviet Union would be able to fight an effective defensive battle. In some ways, this was Zhukov's greatest triumph, not to, to win a, a pitch battle, offensive battle, pushing forward. It was being able to create a defensive field on which the German armed forces would become blunted, and this would then create the conditions for a, a full-fledged Soviet offensive. And that's what happened, uh, effectively. And once again, Zhukov was able to stop Stalin from destroying the plan by making a preemptive uh, strike uh, against the German. Stalin had all kinds of plans in '43. He was an impatient man. And although he, by this stage, came to recognise how much he relied on Zhukov, nonetheless, he, he wanted action, he wanted some, you know, something to be done. And... As in the period before Moscow, as in the period before Stalingrad, Zhukov's job really was to go to Stalin and say, patient, patient, we've worked this out. Um, don't take my forces away from me. Don't start us fighting here or fighting there. We've worked this out and uh, you've got to have confidence in me. It's hard to imagine. We don't know what Stalin thought or went to his mind. He must have had to swallow very hard to accept all this. But he did accept it. This too made uh, a full-scale victory at Kursk possible. In fact, by accident, as much as by design, two big tank armies did roll towards each other in this extraordinary single day of battle on July 9th, 10th. And that hundreds of tanks were destroyed on both sides. And the stories we have of people walking through this wretched battlefield, Zhukov himself afterwards, looking at these dead tanks and the soldiers sprawled under the tracks, was an extraordinary scene and made an extraordinary effect on the people that saw it. The Russian counterattack then was hugely successful, wasn't it? The, the Russian counterattack was everything that Zhukov and others had hoped that it would, would be. And the Germans had so focused on the fact that they would pinch up this salient and then create the circumstances for a forward development that they had not really got any plans for, for retreat. And then suddenly they found this uh, attack blunted. They were being pushed back, then they were being rolled back. And although Hitler and the army command made desperate efforts, they built one fortification, one defensive line after another. In fact, they just had no time to dig in and create those defensive lines. And after that, it was one-way traffic. I mean, for the next three months, they pushed all the way back into Ukraine. And finally, by November, they were having forces around Kiev. After Kursk, the Wehrmacht had really met its match. There was not a question that it was outgunned or even outmanned, because the, the, the German forces in the East were still very, very large. But no doubt they'd been outfought. And although I think German generals later argued that they were swamped by numbers. It wasn't simply numbers. So what was this tough, successful, battle-hardened marshal really like when he was with his family? Was he a strict father? Oh, no, no. He no, wasn't. He wasn't. He never said harsh words, never punished. And, well, he didn't need to because we, we were uh, good girls. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't like when uh, we were telling lies. Uh, well, we weren't uh, telling lies very often, but sometimes when I got bad marks in sco at school, 
I tried to, well, you know, to erase a bad mark from my <laughs> copybook. <laughs> and uh, he just explained me that it's not done, you know. Zhukov was a self-taught man. Apprenticed to a furrier's workshop in Moscow before the First World War, he slept in a hallway beside the lavatory under a light bulb so that he could read and study for school examinations. Later, as an officer, he was very focused. He read books on military science, on strategic and tactics. There was no chance to read literature during the war, you know. Uh, he advised us to read, uh, first of all, Russian classical literature. Pushkin and Lermontov, Tolstoy, Hilaid Sholokhov, quite closed on. Uh, he always uh, bought us books and we had very big uh, library at home. He liked to sing and play what I thought from photographs was an accordion. <laughs> Not accordion. <laughs> Bayan. Bayan is Russian accordion. Uh, there is no name in English, Bayan. He liked to sing. Of course, he wasn't singing every day or <laughs> just to sing. He liked to sing with friends. And um, one of the friend, friends of our family was a famous singer, Lydia Ruslanova, maybe you know her. She performed Russian folk songs. Sometimes they <laughs> sang together. And she told once that for uh, Marshall, he sings uh, not bad. <laughs> so. And as a father, did they consider him a warm personality? <sighs> sure. We know Marshall Zhukov at home. Uh, we haven't seen him in his work or on the battlefield. And uh, at home, he was a very warm person. When the big three war leaders, Roosevelt, Stalin and Churchill, met at Tehran in late November 1943, German forces had been cleared from nearly two-thirds of Soviet territory they once held. On his return, Stalin told Zhukov Roosevelt promised the long-awaited invasion of France in 1944. But even without it, he said, the Red Army could finish off Nazi Germany. Roosevelt did deliver, and almost simultaneously the Russians rolled the Germans back into Poland. The stage was now set for the final great battle, the Battle of Berlin. That was a political battle. Political because, well, the result of the war was obvious. Stalin decided to give a major reward to his best general, Marshal Zhukov, who was put in charge of a front which had a major goal, and the goal was to take Berlin. So he was supposed to take all the glory for that. Unfortunately, that was the worst victory for Zhukov. First of May was uh, a national holiday, and Stalin, uh, who was a politician after all, thought it appropriate that Berlin was supposed to be taken before the 1st of May to be reported for the whole of the country that the 1st of May is not just our holiday, but is the victory day. With great losses, he was approaching Berlin, but he could not take it before that date. And as a result of that, another marshal, Marshal Konev, who was approaching Berlin from the south, was given an order to turn to the north and help Zhukov to take Berlin. So they have, in a way, shared that glory. But to make it clear who is the boss between these two, uh, Stalin had ordered Zhukov to sign uh, the capitulation of Germany on behalf of the Soviet Union. 
which was, of course, the major day for Zhukov. The pictures of that ceremony, and that was in a way a ceremony, will always be in the history books for the even short history books of the 20th century. The Germans' Berlin garrison finally surrendered to Zhukov on the 2nd of May. While he personally inspected the ruins of the Reich Chancellery and Hitler's bunker, Stalin gave the job of finding Hitler's body to Beria's NKVD. Zhukov was shocked years later to learn Stalin kept the discovery of Hitler's remains from him as well as the rest of the world. In Berlin, Zhukov and General Dwight Eisenhower struck up a real friendship. American historian Albert Axel, author of Zhukov, The Man Who Beat Hitler. Very few people know that uh, he and Eisenhower Ike were very good friends. They uh, would leave their ideology in the closet when they met and got along famously. Eisenhower and others say that if Zhukov had continued in office or if he had become the head of government, head of the party, there might not have been any Cold War. They enjoyed each other's company. They exchanged gifts. Zhukov sent a, a huge polar bear skin, which Eisenhower said became the high point of his den in the USA. And Eisenhower once made a speech in which he said, uh, as they often did, they would discuss the differences in their countries. And uh, according to Eisenhower, Zhukov said, you in your country, you Americans say that uh, a citizen can do anything he wants, whatever he wants, he's free to do anything. We in Russia, we say, no, you've got to sacrifice for the country. And Eisenhower said, I was hard put to answer the marshal. That's what he said. <laughs> so Zhukov was extraordinary. And uh, Eisenhower and uh, Montgomery and uh, other Anglo-American uh, generals also had a very high opinion. Uh, Eisenhower said after the war that after the victory over Hitler, the United Nations owed the greatest debt to Marshal Zhukov for what he had done on the Eastern Front. Zhukov had to be very careful in post-war Berlin because he knew he had his political masters looking over his shoulder. But I think he found it irresistible, really, as, as the Soviet commander in, in Berlin, opposite his you know, powerful British and American colleagues, not to play, play the part of Generalissimo in, in Berlin, not to play the part of the, of the conquering hero. Stalin was deeply distrustful of Zhukov. I mean, he, he admired what he had done and knew he had needed him. But just as in the 1930s, he had got rid of Tukhachevsky, uh, another young marshal, popular with the crowd and so on, in the, the purges of 1937. So his mind must have turned in 1945 to the thought, well, is this a young Napoleon? What am I going to do with this man? Is it possible that the crowd will like him more than they like me? And from that point on, of course, Zhukov's days in the, in the political limelight were really numbered. In August 1945, Eisenhower went to Moscow as a guest of the Soviet government with Zhukov as his host. Together they were greeted by thunderous applause and cheering from the people. Eisenhower, in turn, invited Zhukov to visit the US in the autumn. The invitation was first accepted, then abruptly cancelled. Zhukov cited bad health, but the ground was shifting in the Kremlin. Zhukov was accused of Bonapartism, plotting to take over the state. Beria wanted him arrested, but Stalin just wanted him out of the way. So he was banished to the military backwater of Odessa first, and later the Urals. The stress caused him to have a heart attack. Yes, he had a heart attack in 1948. That was not surprising. He was put in such a circumstances, and uh, 
The sisters say Stalin humiliated him, treating him savagely and unfairly. Zhukov was considered to be by Stalin, I presume, as a good tool, very good one. Sharp, hard, uh, handy, whatever. But after the war, he was immediately shown his place. He was being the most decorated general of the army. Uh, he was sent to a rather minor position. And for a while, he stayed there without any idea what might happen with him next day. Stalin died in suspicious circumstances eight years after the war in 1953. The security chief, Lavrenti Beria, and others have recently been suspected of poisoning him. But despite the strange events surrounding his death, nothing has been proved conclusively. At least one account has Zhukov in tears at Stalin's funeral. I put this to his daughters. No, never, never. <laughs> Who could say such nonsense? We never heard this. We've seen father at that time. He was summoned from Urals to Moscow when, when Stalin died. He wasn't crying and he wasn't sad at all. That's funny. <laughs> Beria, described as radiant after Stalin's death, moved swiftly to take power. But Khrushchev had other ideas. He asked Zhukov to join his plot and arrest Beria. Zhukov said he'd never been a policeman, but this was a policeman's task he'd do with great pleasure. Beria was arrested at a meeting of the Politburo. Zhukov smuggled a small group of army officers into the Kremlin. Then, at a prearranged signal, they stormed in. Albert Axel takes up the story. Stalin died in early March of 1953, and the top party people were alarmed that Beria, this sinister, this stooge who was the Minister of the Interior under Stalin, would take over and legalize arbitrary rule. And they had to get, get him, and, and uh, Khrushchev asked Zhukov to come in on the arrest. And Zhukov brought in two divisions of troops, one a rifle division and one a, uh, a tank division, uh, which could outgun anything that Beria had. Beria was the, the minister of the uh, interior. So they uh, had a party meeting of the, the, uh, the Politburo, the, the top uh, or organ of the party, and uh, the people were told, uh, the officers were told to stay outside the doors, protect the doors, and at a certain signal to come in and arrest Beria. Uh, Beria sat down. Of course, he wondered why, what the purpose of the meeting was. And finally, uh, Khrushchev said, uh, you'll be told it's, it's uh, to find out uh, about your illegal doings and to expel you from the party and you're under arrest. And at this moment, uh, signals were given. Zhukov came in, and uh, Beria got excited and said, uh, what's all this? Let's, let's, let's talk, gentlemen. Uh, what's going on here? And, and Zhukov said, you're not in command here. Keep your mouth shut. And they got hold of Beria. They uh, cut the buttons off his, his trousers, so, he'd have, so his hands would, would be occupied holding up his trousers and led him out to a limousine, and that was the beginning of his end. Uh, this was in June of 53. Uh, in July, it was announced he was arrested, and he's supposed to have been shot uh, shortly thereafter. Zhukov 
has admitted that he, ha- he made his contribution to the elimination of this poisonous character. Father told uh, our mother and me, uh, well, next day when he came from this assignment, <laughs> he uh, talked about that, you know, very expressively. Uh, he even showed uh, how he did it. <laughs> he hated Beria. He arrested him. With pleasure, with kind of pleasure, I don't know. He was satisfied. Ah, that's it. When he came up to Beria, he told him, Oh, you wanted to arrest me, but now I arrest you. <laughs> that's what he said to him. This paved the way for Zhukov's return to power. He became Minister for Defence under Khrushchev, but his return was short-lived. Khrushchev, too, came to fear the Marshal's authority and sacked him from the government and the army in 1957. We were shocked, yes, but we felt, you know, that something was cooking, that something's going wrong. We were having a walk uh, in our dacha, and we told our father, Dad... You have to know that Khrushchev is a very bad man, unreliable, double-faced. Well, he told us that it's not your business. (laughs) Well, it turned out he should listen to us. (laughs) He suffered even more because he had no work and he had no contacts with the army. Khrushchev turned out to be a traitor, deceiver. He's just sent him into oblivion, and uh, father suffered very much. In Khrushchev's eyes, Zhukov was getting too big for his britches, and also he was becoming a rival, a potential rival. So he was dropped in 57, and uh, this had a, a terrible effect on his health. You can imagine when a, a military figure, the most famous military man in the country and one of the most famous in in the world is dropped, what happens to him? In the USA, Eisenhower became president. MacArthur was dismissed by Harry Truman, came back to the USA, and even MacArthur could have been president. He was that popular. What happens to Zhukov? He was not seen anymore. A non-person is one who does not get his name in Pravda or Izvestia, the two major newspapers. He's not photographed anymore. He's not mentioned. The encyclopedias, which are writing about the war, squeeze his portrait from, uh, let's say, a page or two into just one or two sentences. He loses his privileges in society. This great general who, as I point out, was the man who beat Hitler, becomes uh, a nobody. Zhukov describes how he survived, and uh, he says for 15 days he couldn't sleep. He takes sleeping pills and wake up, and then he takes sleeping pills again, and uh, he dispute with himself in his dreams. Was I right? Was I wrong? What did I do? And then he'd wake up and take another sleeping pill, and after 15 days, of this hell, he says it ended and he went out and went fishing. Zhukov's memory is assured in Russia, but his family and others feel he deserves more from the West. Once the Cold War was up and running, people were not really interested in how Russia won the war. They were interested really in how Britain and America won the war. And once that obscurity had, had set in, yeah, people persuaded themselves in the West that, that it was really the West that had won the war. And the Russians had done something out there, but we weren't really quite sure what it was. He's accused of ruthlessly sacrificing his troops. I think the idea that he was prodigal with his men to simply use them as cannon fodder is nonetheless wrong. That, that everything we know about Zhukov suggests that, that he wanted to save lives in the middle of the war, that, that getting 
men killed in huge numbers was pointless because you were going to lose the war in the end. At first we must remember that it was the most savage conflict in history. Hitler said outright that this is a war, not the usual war to gain territory, it's a war of extermination. We're going to eliminate millions of Slavs, Jews, gypsies. When you look at the fact that uh, the Hitler's armies were the strongest armies at that time in the world, you can see that there was no way there was going to be few casualties on the Eastern Front. And I leave the last word to his daughters, Era and Ella, proud defenders of his achievement. Of course, he could be considered as harsh during the war. As he said once himself, war is no time for diplomacy. It was a terrible time. We'd like to see him remembered in the West as he was in real life, uh, objectively. I think it's the most easiest thing for any person to sit in an armchair, maybe drinking something, you know, and uh, talking about war and the military commanders and uh, what they should do or what they shouldn't do and accuse them of uh, this or that misdoing, taking other people's lives. It's absurd. A commander who began his career, military career, being uh, just a rank and file, he can't do such things, never. These uh, accusations are absurd and he did what he had to do.